If the Bible teaches anything, it teaches one overarching truth, that it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. And the whole message of the scripture is really framed around that idea from the very beginning to the very end. The Bible presents its message in the context of judgment. From the opening chapters to the closing chapters, this is the way the story opens, this is the way the story ends. And so all human history is moving inevitably and inescapably toward that final sentencing. And as the writer of Hebrews would tell us, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will judge all men, every person who's ever lived and ever will live will be judged by God. And if that is a truth that the scripture presents over and over and over again, a truth that's emphasized, that means that every man and every woman really ought to be thinking about that. They ought to be preparing for that. They ought to understand what they will face in that judgment, what will be asked of them in that judgment. Most of us have had the experience in school of being, when, uh, when we had a teacher, being in a situation where uh, we were tested, maybe without fully knowing what was on the test. And we all felt the frustration of that. We all felt the, maybe the level of injustice in that because the test wouldn't necessarily reflect the reality of, of, uh, of our work or the kind of student that we were because we really didn't know what was expected of us. Well, the good news is that God doesn't, uh, doesn't leave us in that position. He, he doesn't tell us that there will be a judgment and then never tell us what to expect from the judgment. As a matter of fact, it's very clear, very explicit what God expects. And this is consistent with His attribute of justice. We will be judged and will be judged based on what we know. God's intent has always been that we know, always been that we would understand exactly that by which we will be judged, that we would understand exactly the measure by which we will be measured or the criteria by which we will be graded or the rules by which He will examine us or whatever that might be. God's desire is that we understand exactly what the standard will be on the day of judgment. Our passage really kind of introduces that idea for us today, and it's really all about what God expects. It's a difficult passage, a difficult text, as any uh, exegete or any commentator would tell you. Not in its grandest sense. I mean, everyone knows that it's talking about judgment. Everyone agrees about that. But beyond that, there is a lot of questions, a lot of disagreement that emerges when it comes to this passage. It's difficult, really, in figuring out where he's going with all of this. Because if you just sort of move ahead in the text to the next chapter, and then sort of begin there, but read your way backwards, then it becomes sort of a challenging to know where chapter 2 fits into the whole discussion. For example, in Romans 3, 9, we read, What then 
Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul says, look, you know, by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 9, he says, look, this is, we've already made our case in this. We've already made our case that everyone is, is under sin. And if Paul has already charged that by chapter 3, verse 9, the question is, when did he charge that? When did he make that point in the first two and a half chapters? Well, you could look closely at the first eight verses of chapter 3, and you don't really see it there. You'll really have to go all the way back into chapter 2, and particularly at verses 12 and 13, where Paul said, all, have sin- all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So the emphasis seems clearly to be on the doers of the law. People read that and uh, think that the, uh, the, the standard laid out there, the doers of the law, is simply telling us then that God is going to examine our actions, our behavior, you might even say, on the day of judgment. But then, as you read through chapter 2, not just those verses, but as you read through chapter 2, there seems to be an emphasis in the chapter not just on those outward actions, not only on the doing in the sense of outward conduct, but there's also an emphasis on the inner man, the, we might say, being aspect. Or even, if you want to take it beyond that, to to motives, to loving, to desiring, to seeking. All that language about the inner man. You find it in chapter 2. In other words, there's an emphasis on the outer conduct, but also the inner motive. And as the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, or as the older, older versions say, the motives of the heart. And the next verse says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So that's Paul's perspective as well in this chapter, in Romans chapter 2. That when we stand to give account before God, he will be just as concerned with our outer conduct as he is with our inner conduct. You see that, for example, in Romans 2, verse 6, he says, We will render to each one according to his works to those who, by patience in well-doing, listen to this, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Or down in Romans 2, 16, when he speaks about the final judgment, he speaks about that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And of course, the very end of the chapter, probably the place where you hear it most clearly, Romans 2, 28 and 29, he ends the chapter by emphasizing 
No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. See, we understand that when when the Bible speaks about being a doer of the law, then it is so much more than just what you are on the outside. God is as much concerned with what you are on the inside. In other words, when he comes to the day of judgment and when he wants us to understand the day of judgment, he wants us to know that he is as concerned with what you are on the inside. He will judge you as much for that as anything. If you're a Jew, he wants you to be not only one outwardly, but also one inwardly. That is, he wants you to reflect the law of God, not only in your conduct, but also in your heart and your motives and your affections. If you're a Christian, God wants you to be not only a Christian outwardly, but he wants you to be one inwardly. This is, of course, the point that Jesus made when someone asked him about the law of God. He said, the whole law And the prophets are summarized as you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And of course, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you read Romans 2 and imagine that what he's talking about here is uh, only outward activity, only outward conduct, as if he's only talking about conformity to an outward law, you're inevitably going to scratch your head wondering why, when he speaks about being these doers of the law, why he includes in this things which speak about a heart attitude, such as what you seek Uh, What goes on secretly in your heart? What is inwardly true about you? In verse 7, when he speaks about seeking glory and honor and immortality, you're going to wonder how that fits into the whole picture. If you are a student of the Scripture, you're going to hear and read in that and immediately recognize that it doesn't sound like just a law keeper, it sounds like someone who is, we would say, regenerate. It sounds like someone who has a new heart, someone who has a new inner life. And this is where people stumble, really. This is where they really wonder, is Paul... Is Paul really sort of, uh, sort, of, sort of speaking here about the judgment of believers in some sense? Because he sounds like he's talking about people who have these regenerate hearts. No, that's, that's really not what's going on. What he's talking about is really the fact that God, when he wants to judge us, when he ultimately judges, judges us, when he judges Jews, for example, he wants to see both outer and inner conformity to his law. That is the total standard. That is the total call in your life. That's the criteria by which you will be judged. And so when Paul speaks about uh, God, you know, uh, judging people, and if you are this way, he will reward you with eternal life. He's not at that instance suggesting that, that, uh, you know, this is God somehow rewarding with eternal life. Uh, those who are Christians and uh, and therefore 
you know, he's uh, rewarding their works with eternal life. Now, this is God just simply outlining what he ultimately is going to demand of us. As a matter of fact, if you if you're there in verse seven and you just sort of pull out that that phrase seeking glory and honor and immortality and read the verse. He will render to each one according to his works to those uh, who are patient in well-doing. He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If you were to read it just in that sense, uh, then that would make sense to most people. They would understand that Paul is contrasting a judgment of perfect obedience versus a judgment of imperfect obedience or imperfection. But when Paul introduces this idea of, of the inner life, the seeking of these noble things, people begin to wonder, well, has he, has he deviated really from his overall purpose of showing that, that all people are under sin? Has he introduced here some sort of a, a, a side purpose of validating Christians and trying to demonstrate that Christians will be okay in the judgment and that they will inherit eternal life. Is that really what this is all about? Is he emphasizing that believers will be judged by their good works as long as they had good motives? Is he saying that believers will inherit eternal life because of their persistent well-doing? No, that's, that's not the point of the passage. Not saying that God doesn't care about our works. Not saying that God isn't going to judge our works. In fact, we would affirm that the Scripture puts great emphasis on the judgment of the works, even of believers, on the day of judgment. That's emphasized in other passages of Scripture. For example, Jesus affirms this in Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each one according to what He's done. Matthew, excuse me, John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or, rather explicitly, Paul says in Galatians, that great book affirming the salvation by grace alone. And nevertheless, Paul ends uh, that book in Galatians 6, verse 7, saying, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he's he's even uh, uh, in that great epistle acknowledging that there must be a sowing, there must be a doing in our life, and that doing will be judged accordingly. As he says in 1 Corinthians 3, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. He's talking about your salvation there. You'll be saved, but it will be a fiery day. John 
recording the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 2.23, says this, And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. Or Revelation 22, verse 10, He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So the Bible certainly would want us to know that God is going to examine even those of us who are believers. Even our works are going to be examined on the day of judgment. As James says, we'll be justified by our works and not by our faith alone, James 2.24. So that's taught in Scripture. The Bible affirms that the day of judgment, God will judge our works. But don't confuse all that to mean that you're saved by your works. The Bible is clear that even while believers will be judged by our works, it's still grace that ultimately saves us. Scripture never gives you the impression that your works, however, will have absolutely no difference, will mean absolutely nothing on the day of judgment. They don't matter. In fact, Scripture places great emphasis on these works. Not that we'll be saved by them as much as they will demonstrate or we might even say vindicate our profession of faith as believers. Works, the works will be judged as an evidence of the inward transformation that's taking place in our heart. They will put on display that while the life of Jesus has completely satisfied the outward a uh, uh, demand for perfection or the demand for outward perfection according to the law, our works will demonstrate that we have also experienced an inner renewal of our hearts. It will be the evident uh, evidence of that. The works will be, that is. As John Stott puts it this way, quote, the reason for this, that is the reason for our, our ju- the judgment of of the works of believers on the day of judgment. He says, the reason for this is not hard to find. It is that the day of judgment will be a public occasion. It is, its purpose will be less to determine God's judgment than to announce it and to vindicate it. Such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed will require public and verifiable evidence to support them. End quote. Or John MacArthur says it this way, quote, The outward godly works are the evidence of inner faith. Salvation is not by works, but it will assuredly produce works. The presence of genuine good deeds in a person's life reveals that he has truly been saved. And in God's infallible eyes, those deeds are a perfectly reliable indicator of saving faith. In the same way, the absence of genuine good deeds reveals the absence of salvation. In both cases, deeds become a trustworthy basis for God's judgment, end quote. So we know that's true. We know that that's what the 
Scripture affirms that even we as believers will face a judgment of our works. Uh, Many commentators, many theologians have long since recognized that reality. But that's not Paul's focus here. That's not his focus in this chapter. He's not trying to teach us uh, uh, an eschatology, a theology of last things regarding believers. He's not suggesting that uh, at this point. He's simply pointing out the fact that God, when He comes to judge all mankind, He will demand both an outer perfection and an inner transformation, we might say, or inner reflection of the law. He will want for Jews that they be a Jew not only outwardly, but also inwardly. And as Paul will go on to demonstrate throughout the remainder of Romans, the gospel has been given in such a way that it sufficiently answers both of those elements. Romans 3 through 5, Paul will give a thorough explanation of how, in spite of the fact that all sin and fall short of God's glory. Jesus Christ was sent to be a satisfaction of God's demands regarding righteousness that you and I cannot produce in ourselves, a satisfaction even of of punishment, the death that you and I deserve because we do sin. So, so that will be the outward part. The Son has been sent into the world to satisfy that sort of outward uh, deficiency that we have. But then, beginning in chapter 6, Paul will move from the outward satisfactions of God's demands to the inward. And he will begin to outline in chapter 6, really through chapter, we could almost say 12, he will begin to outline how, how the, the Spirit particularly in chapter 6 through 8, the Spirit brings an inner transformation so that whereas he says in Romans 7, we once served according to the outward letter, now we serve according to the power of the Spirit, the inner power of the Spirit. He says it in Romans 7, 6, I believe it is. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which we were captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So this is exactly what the book of Romans will present. That while God's demand at the final judgment will be both an outward conformity and an inner transformation, He has given us sufficiency through the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to stand satisfactorily, complete in every way before Him. Now, that's the big picture. But at this point in Paul's letter, he's simply pointing out the demand. He's presenting presenting it in terms of the final judgment, what God will demand from us at the point of judgment. I want us to very briefly look at that, what Exactly what Paul says this judgment that awaits all mankind is like. And uh, before we do that, let's just briefly 
read this passage in its entirety. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 2. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking... And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. There are three features of God's judgment that Paul's very simply emphasizing for us here. The first of those, the first feature of God's judgment that he's highlighting is found in verse 6, and that is the comprehensive criteria. The comprehensive criteria. He says that God will render to each one according to his works. That's the comprehensive criteria. Very simply, your works, defined by the Bible, as we said, as both your inner and your outer life. When you face uh, God in judgment, that's what He will demand of you. If you want to inherit eternal life, He will demand of you not only that you have done all of the things that that He uh, has commanded, but that you have wanted to do them, that you have loved them, that that has been a reflection of your inner person. The law will be the ultimate determiner. And what the law demands is essentially works. It is works both inner and outer. As Paul will say in chapter 3, whatever the law says, it speaks to those those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become accountable to God. Every mouth, he says, will be stopped. So there's nobody who can claim that he's exempt from, from this standard. No one who can offer excuses, no one who can claim that he doesn't need to be evaluated by this divine standard. So if, verse 7 says, if you demonstrate persistent well-doing, perseverance in well-doing, ongoing well-doing, ongoing good works, in other words, God is not going to examine simply your best season of life. He's not going to examine simply your best years. He's not going to look simply at your uh, childhood years, your youthful years. He's not going to look just at your collegiate years. He's not going to look at your retirement years. He's going to look at the totality of your life. And what he's going to want to find is a persistence, a consistency, an unbreakable chain of well-doing. A pattern of perfection, in other words, for the length of your life. And those works will reflect an inner heart that loves and desires heavenly glory and honor and immortality. In other words, that you lived your life as essentially focused on God's kingdom and His righteousness. And that's the purpose for which you lived. On heavenly glory, heavenly honor, heavenly life, more than anything in this life. But on the other hand, if you face God on the day of judgment and demonstrate what Paul describes in verse 8 as 
first of all, a self-seeking. A focus in life on what satisfies you. A focus in life on what makes you feel good, on what makes you feel happy, on what is essentially serving your own needs. If you face God on the day of judgment and you're, first of all, self-seeking, or he says, secondly, you do not obey the truth. In other words, you hear truth from God's word. You hear truth from the Bible and you say, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in what God says. I'm not interested in what the Bible says. I'm going to do what I want to do. In other words, you have a spirit of antagonism towards righteousness, a spirit of antagonism towards the lordship of Jesus Christ, an unwillingness to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you, if you face God and you have in your life that or periods of that or whatever it might be, or thirdly, he says, if you obey unrighteousness. So on one hand, you don't obey God or you don't obey his word. On the other hand, you obey unrighteousness. You, in other words, you demonstrate Sinful desires are more a master of your life than God is, more a master of your life than Jesus Christ. If you demonstrate that you're more willing and more eager to obey impulses towards selfishness and to indulgence and to sin or to whatever it might be, and you show that you obey unrighteousness, well, you'll face the judgment. You'll face the judgment. And God will judge you according to those deeds. And, and that sort of takes us to the second element of the judgment that Paul presents here. Second feature of God's judgment that he emphasizes. Which is really in verses 8 through 10. And that's the ultimate end. The ultimate end. Those who do not produce the persistent good works that are demanded. And the inner heart that's demanded. The end is clear. God promises His holy and wrathful reaction. Verse 8 says it. Those people will experience God's wrath and fury. Wrath uh, is an interesting word. It's a word that has to do with hurrying or or being in a, a rush. And so it actually came to be associated with sort of the panting of a person who was chasing after someone else in a rage. And so it has this idea of, 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 of breathing violently or, or, or heavily or something like that in rage. And this is the idea of wrath. It's a, it's a word of, of a sort of, uh, of consuming fire or something that just sort of takes over your body in this panting and this breathing violently, a sweat of rage, we would say. God, in other words, will burst out like a consuming fire against those who live in such rebellion. And then he adds the word fury with that, which is another term for anger. And it really kind of reaches, it speaks about reaching the end or reaching the, 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 uh, a high pitch or something. And really presents the idea of exhausting God's God's forbearance, exhausting God's mercy, reaching an end of God's mercy, uh, reaching a, a, a point where God's tolerance comes to an end, uh, sort of what Paul talked about back in chapter 2, verse 4, when he talked about how God's goodness 
and kindness and forbearance and patience, all of those things, they're, they're meant to bring you to a point of repentance. But the message of the scripture is that though that patience will not be everlasting. It will not be forever. There is an end to it. And when you reach the end, all that's left is fury. And so you can see by these terms that God is talking about a great fury of anger against those works that reflect an earthward attitude, a selfish attitude, and a denial of Him. And this wrath leads to what Paul says in verse 9, is tribulation and distress. Philipsis is the word there for tribulation. It has the idea of pressure, pressing in on something. It was used to speak of uh, squeezing grapes and getting the juice that was out of them, but also very much so used of squeezing people. It's one of the words that's used very often to speak about persecution in the church. And so you have the idea of pressure and, and uh, uh, pain and and uh, affliction being pushed down and pressed down. Uh, Stressful would certainly be an understatement for this. He's talking about a a time of intense pressure, tribulation. And then he adds to that a second word, distress, which is a, a word for a narrowing or a confining, a narrow, limited place. Or at least it comes from that idea, I should say. And you can think of it this way, in God's anger and God's fury. God is going to pour out this kind of tribulation in isolation, or you isolated, in a narrow, confined, imprisoned place. Uh, Of course, people have known for a long time that one of the most severe forms of torture is solitary confinement. That this is uh, one of the ways that they can take some of the most rigid and hardened uh, people, uh, soldiers, and get them to break. Because there's just something that happens whenever you are cast into a, a confined cell for days or weeks or months with absolutely no one to talk to, no one to see. You can't have any interaction, no social interaction, no, no uh, uh, verbal interaction, nothing, no emotional interaction. And no matter how uh, staunch and hardened of a soldier you will be, you will break in that kind of environment, people have learned. Well, this isn't just weeks or months or even years. This is eternity. This is eternity. God speaks about eternal punishment as this distressing and uh, confining and lonely existence. I mean, the Bible speaks about hell a number of different ways it certainly speaks about it as a fire a furnace a lake of fire fire and brimstone an unquenchable fire that just sort of speaks to the place of suffering and the sense of 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 ongoing and never-ending corruption a place where the scripture says uh, the worm never dies there there's just always uh if you will a, a a decay that's going on but the never a wasting away because there's no end to it it never dies 
It's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But one of the most fearful that the Scripture ever gives is that it's a place of outer darkness. It's a place of absolute loneliness. So that you, you might have your buddies that you run around with and get into all your mischief and your sin and all of your uh, foolishness now, but they, they will not be there on the day of judgment. They will not be there for eternity. There will be no one to commiserate with, no one to, to uh, uh, sh- share or help you bear any of the pain and the suffering of that burden. In fact, that's one of the most uh, uh, challenging things for most people when they go through distress is sometimes a sense of loneliness that they have in going through it. And this will be absolute loneliness. Anguish in a confined and prison place. It'll come upon every soul of man that doesn't obey the truth. Every one whose mode of living is that of an unrighteous lifestyle, filled with selfish activity, refusing to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrath and anger. Well, really the thing that Paul wants to emphasize more than anything else in this passage isn't just those two things we might say. That's really what he comes on at the end in, um, in verse 11 and that is the impartiality or the impartial examination. The impartial examination. The emphasis is uh, uh, that's repeated throughout this entire passage is that this judgment that's coming, it's for everybody. It's for everyone. can look back at verse 9 for example Paul says uh, he is talking about every human being every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek uh, the Jew first or we might say the Gentile the Jew first or the non-Jew every person he says that in verse 10 every human being verse uh, verse 9 excuse me verse 10 says uh, glory, honor, peace would be for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, because, verse 11, God shows no partiality. In other words, there can be no special exceptions. There are no people who will arrive at the judgment and not have their works examined. In particular for the Jews, no one who has special status because of his ethnicity or religious heritage or racial heritage or whatever it might be. As Paul will go on to point out in verses 12 through 13, no person who will escape the demands of God's law. It won't simply be those who've heard the law who are justified. It won't be those who've grown up under its teaching who are saved. It won't be those who simply understand and have exposure or even affirmation to the law. You can have all those things. You can be the biggest cheerleader in the world. You can affirm good people and good things and all of that, but at the end of the day, it will be one single and universal criteria, those who do the law, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or, as I said, to to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew, to everyone. To those who have the law, And even for those who don't have the law, as Paul will go on to say uh, down in verse 14, the Gentiles who do not have the law, even they will be judged because they have 
something of the law written on their hearts. They have a sort of conscience that's going to, um, that provides, I should say, enough knowledge by which they will be judged. They'll be judged for sure, as he says in verses 12 through 14, and they'll be judged fairly based on what they know, based on what's written in their conscience. So you can come that day of judgment and you can claim that you made a profession of faith, you prayed some prayer of salvation, you can come claiming that you had some religious experience, you can come pointing out some relationship that you had to a church or to a religious organization or even to a, a person, to your mom, to your dad, that you were brought up in a, a, a spiritual home and your parents prayed for you and that your grandparents were a great influence on you and all these other things and you love them dearly. Or, or you could be a Jew and you could come pointing out the fact that you're a descendant of Abraham and God had promised special blessings to Abraham and to his offspring, to his descendants. You can do all of that. And Paul says, none of it will matter. Because in the end, we all will stand under the exact same demand. Everybody, exactly the same. His works, his deeds. The Jews didn't necessarily believe this. They believed that they were the covenant people of God and that therefore they would have a special status on the day of judgment. That, that something uh, to do with their, their ethnic and racial heritage, their national heritage, just being born under the law or whatever it might be, uh, being circumcised, having the signs of the covenant, whatever these things are, they believed that, that all of those things would give them something by which to receive special favor. The Jews didn't deny that there would be a judgment. And they didn't deny that you had to do works, but, but they still believed that they would somehow be judged more leniently than anyone else. Paul says that's not the case. That's not the case. We all know the image, even in our own law courts, of a, of a lady holding a set of scales in her right hand and blindfolded. Um, usually somewhere on the wall or on the bench. Of course, the idea is that justice doesn't show favoritism, that it's blind to the individual people who are in front of it. And all that matters to them, all that matters to the, the, the court of law or all that matters to genuine justice is simply conformity. Conformity to the law. Did you or did you not break the law no matter who you are? doesn't take into account anyone's looks, anyone's position in life, anyone's standing before other people, anyone's reputation, all of that. And that's really what Paul's emphasizing here, that God will have no partiality. And it puts together a word for receiving appearance. Uh, God's not going to receive the appearance. God's not going to weigh your appearances. God's not going to weigh your reputation. You may be known before people as a decent person. You might be known for people even for a reputation of doing good things, but it's not going to matter to God. What's going to matter to God is did you have throughout the entirety of your life a consistent 
persistent, unbreakable pattern of good deeds that reflected also in your heart. And although you may distinguish yourself from other people, and although you might feel like you have been distinguished by people, it doesn't matter with God. None of that will matter. No impartiality on that day of judgment. When that becomes a sole standard of judgment, when all we have to do or all we have to stand on is simply our works, well, the result is clear. The total indictment. If you want eternal life, you you got to have this perfect standard of doing good deeds all your life, and you also have to have an internal uh, life, an internal heart that shows affection and love and self and, and seeking after uh, uh, heavenly glory and honor and God's righteousness and His kingdom. One who seeks after those noble things. But if you don't, if you don't. then the end is clear. And this is the declaration of Scripture that, that, that every person is in that latter category. As Paul will go on to say in verse 10 of chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The point that Paul will make and the point that he introduces here is that when you stand before God on your own, What's going to become evident are the the facts of your life, the works of your life. And they're going to reflect an inner heart that at the end of the day doesn't really love God, doesn't really seek God, doesn't doesn't really understand God, doesn't really long for God or for His things. What's going to be revealed on the Day of Judgment are people who, in their own deeds, are rebels against God, are sinful, and are therefore condemned. You will be judged, my friend. You'll be judged, and the reality is you won't be able to stand. You say, well, what about all the good things? I mean, don't, aren't those going to be taken into account? You know, the scripture says even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Even the good things that you think are good, they're not even good enough. They're not even righteous enough. They're not even holy enough to meet God's standard. So the result is total indictment. The result is inevitable condemnation. The result is fearful, wrathful judgment. You know, the good news in all this isn't, I guess I should say the good news is that Paul doesn't stop in Romans chapter 2. That he goes on. He, he tells us what God's demands are. He, he does exactly what he says needs to be done, which is every one of us needs to have our mouth Stopped. Every one of us needs to be held accountable to the standard of God's holiness and righteousness. He does that, but he doesn't leave it at that. 
Because he goes on, thankfully, in the rest of the book to say that although we all prove to be under sin, that nevertheless, God's righteousness has been made available apart from the law through Jesus Christ. That the righteousness that God ultimately demands, He provides another way. Because He knows that we're sinners and He knows that we can't do this on our own. And so He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be a sacrifice that could stand in the place of you and I under judgment. That is, the, the cross of Christ could take the full fury of God's wrath And at the same time, he sent his son who had a life of righteousness that is sufficient enough to provide righteousness for every person who would ever believe in him so that we can stand before God having perfect conformity to the law by virtue of the substitution of Christ's life for ours. And not only that, God can also give you a new heart. God can take one who is full of selfish seeking and and, and self-love and disobedience, or I should say following after disobedience. God can take all of that and He can transform you into one who does love God, into one who loves righteousness, into one who loves mercy, He can take and transform you in your inner man into conformity with His outer law. And so God can satisfy all the demands. The gospel and Christ can satisfy all the demands that you will ever face on the day of judgment. We don't want you to leave here today or hear the word of God today without understanding that message, without responding. So our appeal to you is always that you would understand the gospel, that you would repent of of your uh, waywardness from God, and that you would receive the good news of Christ today. And we hope that, uh, that that would be your response. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the word, thankful that it can be proclaimed in truth, and in confidence. And we do pray that you would take the Word of God, that you would use it in the hearts and minds of not only your people, calling us to faithfulness, reminding us of the judgment that's to come, but also those who are yet to be your people, but called by you. Lord, we pray that they would respond to that calling. We pray that they would hear the gospel and believe. We pray, Father, that they would take stock of where they stand before you in judgment and be prepared by the provision that you've so graciously given. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.